Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today I am joined by Professor Dylan C. Penningroth, who is the Professor of Law, and Alexander F. and May T. Morrison, Professor of History, Associate Dean, Program on Jurisprudence and Social Policy slash Legal Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Penningroth specializes in the African-American history and in U.S. socio-legal history. His articles have appeared in the University of Pennsylvania Law, the Journal of American History, the American Historical Review, and the Journal of Family History. Professor Penningroth's first book, The Claims of Kinfolk, African-American Property and Community in the 19th Century South, won the Avery Craven Prize from the Organization of American Historians, Today, we will be discussing his new book, Before the Movement, The Hidden History of Black Civil Rights. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Penningroth. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Of course. So my book is uh, about, at the largest level, how African-Americans used law, uh, how they talked about law, how they thought about law from roughly the last few decades of slavery through the 1970s. So it's a story that covers three centuries of black legal lives. And it uses that story of black legal lives to open a window onto some aspects of black life itself that I think don't get talked about as much as they should. The book is not primarily about race relations. But it is something that tries to um, explain something that uh, we might not know about how race worked in American law. And it does that largely by looking at cases that were not about race, quote unquote, and sometimes um, didn't even mention race. Now, why did you select legal lives of black people in America as your topic? What led you? to your interest in this specific topic? Well, sure. Okay. So that's a great question. And it's always a a tough question to answer. Um, I I guess there are probably two ways to answer it. One is professional and the other one's personal. So the professional answer is uh, after I finished my first book in 2003, uh, The Claims of Kinfolk, a few years later, I joined the American Bar Foundation as a halftime scholar. So I was working halftime at Northwestern in the history department and halftime in this this institute surrounded by scholars who worked on law and something else. So law and sociology, law and political science. And they were all, uh, you know, really forming these interesting connections that I found really generative for my work. 
And I began getting more and more interested in the legal dimensions of African-American history. The personal answer, I guess, would be that I had always heard family stories when I was growing up. Um, and I think we all do. We go to cookouts, um, we're at holiday parties, or we're just sitting around the dinner table. And we tend to hear things, and sometimes we pay attention. Um, but it occurred to me sometime around when I was at the American Bar Foundation that some of the stories I was hearing actually were stories that were partly about law. Um, and so, you know, I began to press on that, uh, and I really wanted to see what I could do. Now, what type of sources did you use in your analysis and how did the research pro process contribute to your understanding of the documents as you were writing? So uh, I actually used some of the family stories that I had heard. Um, one of them was a story that actually my uncle caught on tape back in the 1970s of his great-great-uncle, uh, Thomas Holcomb. Um, and Thomas Holcomb told a story about his father, Jackson Holcomb, uh, who had a boat. And he was using the boat to earn a little bit of money on the side. And toward the end of the Civil War, he got approached by some Confederate soldiers who needed to get across the Appomattox River. They were running away from losing the Battle of Richmond. And he took them across and when they got to the other side they paid him and i had sort of heard that story before but now that i was thinking in terms of legal relations it occurred to me that there was there were a couple of strange things going on one how is it that uh, my uncle my great 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 uncle jackson holcomb had a boat um and second, why didn't the soldiers just take it from him and row themselves across and leave him on the other side of the river? And as I got into the research, I started to realize that the answer was probably that white people by 1865 were pretty used to making deals with slaves. And they were pretty used to the idea that slaves could have property. The way that I came to that understanding um, was by looking at a lot of sources um, outside of family, uh, family stories, of course. One of the main sources was looking at court records. Um, and another set of sources that I looked at was the records of the Southern Claims Commission, which I had used a lot in my first book, which is basically a government compensation commission for property that was taken by the Union Army for army use during the Civil War. And it turns out that several hundred enslaved people filed claims and got compensation. So clearly enslaved people had property. The real question now in my mind was, what did that mean in a legal sense? You know, Can you have property even while you're property? In the first book, my answer was, that they owned it in a non-legal sense. This is extra legal. But now I've come to realize that although they did not have rights, 
they really did own property in a legal sense. And that's because property was something that was open to people who did not have rights. Um, it existed in a grid of legal understandings, or I say, say le- understandings about property that both black people and white people participated in. And we can talk a little bit about, more about that in a minute. But the way that I came to understand that was largely by looking at records from local county courthouses. I went to about 22 county courthouses scattered around um, the South, the Midwest, the Northeast, um, and the nation's capital. And I collected something like uh, 14,000 cases. Um, And of those, I found that about 1,500 of them involved African-Americans. And so that is, if I was going to point to one kind of source that was the main source, that would probably be it. But I use a whole bunch of different sources, and I feel like that's what gives me confidence in the arguments that I'm making. Was there anything in the archives that surprised you? I think probably the main thing Actually, let me start by mentioning something that I'm not sure whether it surprised me or different didn't surprise me because I honestly wasn't sure what to expect. And that is how the county clerks reacted when I showed up. So the, the thing is, is that if you if you write a book based on county court records, you're not actually going to an archive like the people who work there their business is not to serve you old historical records like it is in an archive. Their business is basically to process traffic tickets. Um, That's kind of the main thing that they do. Um, I guess the other thing is um, uh, enabling title searches for land, uh, land titles. So, you know, I, I would typically call ahead. I'd try to string together, you know, three or four different, counties on one trip. So I'd get on the plane, I'd fly to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I'd rent a car and I'd start driving. And, um, you know, I got to the courthouse, I I would have to um, trust that the, the county clerk, the circuit clerk would allow me to look at them. Of course, legally, I'm entitled to look at them. They're public records. But that doesn't mean that the county clerk actually has to let me look at them or look at them when I want to look at them. So they can make things very inconvenient. And um, and in addition, I wasn't sure how they would see me as a person. And I wasn't sure how they would react, uh, especially in places like Mississippi and Virginia, to someone who wanted to come in and study African-American history. And so I, I was really pleased that almost without exception, they were um, incredibly willing to either help me or at least make it possible for me to get done what I needed to get done. They, they were receptive, and I'm very grateful to each and every one of them. Um, I guess the second thing <clears throat> that maybe surprised me is how rarely 
race got marked on these records. You know, this is the Jim Crow era is a lot of the time that I'm looking at. And so, you know, this is the time when water fountains have the signs white and colored over them. Um, if you think about a county courthouse, they start to install water fountains. Um, <clears throat> they, they segregate all sorts of things at this time. Railroads are segregated, trains are segregated, buses are segregated. But when you go and look at records in the county courthouses, there are many of the, the kinds of records that people dealt with the most were actually not segregated at all. And not only that, they weren't marked by race. So you could sit there and you could read through whole file boxes of documents, or you could read through a thousand page ledger, these big cloth bound ledgers where they keep, uh, you know, the, the court dockets. And you wouldn't know which of the people's names on the page um, were black. And that was kind of a surprise to me. I would say that was one of the things that surprised me as well, because as you say, we're talking about the Jim Crow era. So it's almost you would think that there would be some markings discussing race. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes there were markings. Um, so the markings could be explicit. You know, they could say colored. But that was very, very, very rare. Sometimes they would be subtle. And this would happen sometimes when I would see, uh, you know, some little hint in, in the transcript or in the lawyer's papers that I was looking at. They would, for example, take a person's case and they'd wrap it up. They'd fold it up in a page torn from the colored section of the city phone directory. So that, that's kind of a subtle hint. Um, but most of the time there is no clue at all. And I think that the reason that that happened is because for certain kinds of legal actions, um, race is not material anymore. And by that, I mean, it's not something that would make a difference to the outcome of the case. So if you're selling land, there's no such thing as colored land. If you're making a contract, there's no such thing as colored contracts. Like if you come into court and you argue that the party on the other side of this agreement that you say you made was black, the judge isn't going to care. I mean, the, the judge might care in a personal sense and obviously race matters um, in that sense. But there's no legal reason that race is going to make a difference. Now, some kinds of records, race does make a difference because it makes a difference in some kinds of law. So the law of marriage and divorce. In many states until the 1960s, you couldn't get married to a person of a different race. And so what that means is that the marriage records um, and the divorce records are marked by race. In fact, they're even uh, separate. In many counties, there are separate um, uh, marriage registers for white and colored citizens, and they sit on a different shelf. But 
the vast majority of the records in those courthouses are not segregated by race and they're not even marked by race. And so you have to figure out, it, it poses practical difficulties and it poses an analytical um, an analytical riddle, I think. Right. And, you know, it's one of those things as I'm thinking about that, um, this idea of not having race there. Mm-hmm. You know, for most people, how, and I'm going to ask you, did most people conceptualize black people and their interactions with the legal system versus what you saw as the reality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so all I have to work with is what's on the page. Um, but what I can do is I can bring to that, you know, number one, my common sense. And, and then number two, you know, my, my, understanding based on what scholars have written about aspects of life outside of the law of property and contract and standing. And there we know that race made an enormous difference in people's lives. So voting, you you can't vote if you're black, uh, you know, for the most part, it really makes a difference. Um, So you know, when, when I think about uh, race in these old county court records, I think of it as being or as revealing something like a hidden history. And I think it's hidden in two senses. So one is a figurative sense. The other is literally. The, the figurative sense um, is, <clears throat> is that African-American history has tended to be written around the framing device of race relations. Often that's uh, presented as a freedom struggle. Um, The idea is that black people move over time from a state of no rights to second-class citizenship, inferior rights, toward full citizenship. And, and and toward freedom. And so I think that there are obviously enormous strengths to approaching African, African-American history in that way. But there are some things that get left out. And, you know, I'll just mention a couple of those things. We can come back to them. But, for example, um, African-Americans' ideas about old age and who is responsible for caring for the old, that that doesn't really fit very well in the, the freedom struggle model. Um, black patriarchy, uh, you know, this long history where um, African-American men use their legal prerogatives to control women and to extract labor from women and children. Again, that doesn't really fit very well in the freedom struggle narrative, unless you, you know, kind of cast that as an obstacle along the path to freedom. So the the, the absence of race in these legal records um, makes it difficult for us to imagine these other areas of black life that certainly mattered to people in the past. 
But then the, the, it matters literally too, because as I said, if you go to the courthouse shelf, you can't, you actually cannot see race. And so what that means, I think, on an analytical level or even a conceptual level, um, is that our legal world and the legal world that of, of Jim Crow is colorblind, but only literally, right? It, it, it literally does not see race, but race matters enormously in these cases and in the wider world of which these cases are a part. I agree. I mean, it's one of those things as I was reading, it helped me in some ways reconceptualize my own thinking about the freedom struggle um, and the ways in which it has been spoken about. But you're correct, there is this hidden history of what is also going on at the same time. And I want to ask you, why do you think it has been so hidden for the most mm -hmm. part? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it just goes back to the practical difficulty. You, you know, this book took 20 years to write, and that's a long time. Pe people need to move on with their lives. And I happened to have, um, you know, the, the I, I was fortunate enough to receive at certain points um, time and money to pursue this project. Um, but, you know, going to county courthouses to do a national study takes a lot of time. And, and then second, I think, um, I guess I got lucky in another sense, which is that uh, Ancestry.com uh, became a thing. So, you know, at the beginning, when I started this in the early 2000s, if I wanted to find out what race a person was, you know, like I'm looking at a court case in the courthouse and I want to see, is this person black? I would have to go back home. I'd have to copy down the name, go back home, um, and then look the person up in the manuscript census. It, it would usually be microfilm. Um, and that would take like at least half an hour. And then the hit rate, you know, it's only like a 50-50 chance that I'm actually going to find the person at all. And there's no way that I'm going to be able to go through 14,000 names that way. But what happens in, you know, in the past 20 years that Ancestry.com comes along and, you know, most of us know it as the place where you can send a swab from the inside of your cheek and then you find out, you know, which part of West Africa you're from or something like that. But of course, they also have um, this other, uh, you know, really powerful online engine, which is that they've digitized all of the U.S. censuses. So you can actually search for individuals and find people. And that's what I did. You know, me and my research assistants for many years went and looked people up one by one. That takes a lot of time. So, you know, I guess the answer to your question, why haven't people done that? I mean, the first, I guess the first, you know, response I would have to that is that um, it's hard. It's just sort of, it poses practical difficulties but I hope that, um, you know, that people will do more of this work. It, it is getting easier. It's more possible to do than it ever has been. And there's a lot 
out there to discover. I think I've barely scratched the surface. You've done a phenomenal job starting off, I have to say, uh, with your introduction to this. And that brings me to this. One of the things that you wanted to show was that African-Americans cared about law and order, uh, but not the traditional way that people typically think of law and order. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I, I kind of used that phrase a little bit deliberately. Uh, you know, law and order is a, a term that Richard Nixon, the arch conservative trickster president um, uh, who resigned in the early 1970s after his scandal, um, he used that as essentially a code word for his um, dog whistle racial politics. Um, the forces of law and order arrayed against you know, the forces of anarchy. Um, and so I wanted to take that in a different direction because it occurred to me that black people in the Jim Crow South and today were suffering not just from over-policing, uh, but from under-policing. In many ways, what they needed and what they were calling for again and again is, um, is for law, for uh, a force to, um, to make sure that the agreements that they entered into were honored, um, that their property was secure. And you can see this again and again in the record. So I'll just give you uh, an example, uh, a story that really um, stood out for me in the course of this research. And it has to do with uh, a woman named Lena Harrington. And um, so Lena Harrington is uh, a working class woman in North Carolina in the town of Hamlet um, in about 1945. One of her neighbors, Arnesia Taylor, is being beaten by her husband. She's suffering from domestic abuse. Taylor goes to the police, and the police, instead of doing something about it, they drop her off at Harrington's house, at the neighbor's. Arnesia Taylor's husband, Lee Walter Taylor, goes the next day over to Harrington's, comes into the house, and then... Arnisha becomes terrified that Lee Walter is actually going to kill her this time. And so she grabs an ax that's lying around. She hits Lee Walter twice on the head with the flat of the ax. And then she raises it up again with the edge pointed down. Lena Harrington sees this and tries to block it and instead her hand gets pinned against the door frame and it's, it's mangled. It's badly injured. Lee Walter Taylor promises to pay Lena Harrington for her injuries. Because remember she's working class. She washes clothes for a living and she has doctor's bills. Now Lee Walter Taylor pays her $20 and then he stops paying. Harrington sues him for breach of contract. Okay. There's a lot going on here. One thing I think that we can take away from this story is that Lena Harrington 
and Lee Walter Taylor, but especially Harrington, she's using contract law as a substitute for a criminal justice system that's completely indifferent to Black people and especially to Black women suffering domestic violence. Right? The cops dropped Arnisha Taylor off. They don't care about Arnisha Taylor. They're probably not going to care that Lena Harrington's hand has been mangled. And so I think she's using it as a substitute for this criminal justice system that's unresponsive. That all by itself is just fascinating to me. The second thing, though, that's fascinating is where I found this case. I found it in a leading case book on contract law. It's sort of a standard teaching tool. If you go to law school, your first year of law school, you would use this case book. And it turns out that this case is being taught in many of the leading case books. And the case books don't disclose that all of the people involved in this story were black. Instead, it, it presents the case that it teaches the case as um, a teaching tool about the doctrine of past consideration. It's about contract formation. When do you have a contract? To the casebook authors, race doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. It's not part of what they're trying to teach the students. And that's fine. But as scholars, and maybe as law students, we might want to know that the people involved in these events were black. So my take, my second takeaway from this case, again, is that here's an example of law being colorblind. Like if you read the transcript of the case, there are only tiny clues that any of the people are black. Um, and if you read the report from the North Carolina Supreme Court or the case books, it's not there either. So here's an example of where law is colorblind, but only literally. Wow. I mean, that's, it's just, there's no mention to hear that there's no mention whatsoever of race and that all of the events occurred. And yet, you know, there's just this colorblindness that's there about all of it. I think that's right. Although um, I, I, and I do use the word colorblind sometimes, but I think what's going on is that judges and lawyers and sometimes the litigants themselves, they're actually not, they're obviously not colorblind. They know what's going on, but they're opportunistic. They, they are choosing whether or not to mention race, to lift up race, depending on what is going to benefit the particular legal goal that they have in mind. Usually they want to win the case. Um, and so they're going to lift it up or suppress it, depending on whether they think that will win the case for them. And then judges, in turn, they either emphasize or de-emphasize race, depending on whether they want the holding that they're writing to have a narrow sweep or a broad sweep. Like, do they want the holding in this case, the doctrine of past consideration, um, do they want this uh, this holding to sweep up only black people whose hands are mangled or do they want it to sweep up to apply to everyone, anyone whose hand is mangled. And in this case, by suppressing race, they make the holding applicable to all people. 
And so it's a, it, that's how it becomes, I think, a standard teaching case in contract law. Right. And as you're saying this, I'm thinking about, you know, they're using contract law here. And that points to this idea of black people using rules of, and this is a little bit later, you know, in a larger context of corporations in their act- interactions with the legal system to their advantage. Um, can you speak a little about that as well? I'm really glad you asked about that. It, it's one of the, the one of the things I had to one of the many things I had to teach myself along the way is sort of the basics of of corporation law. Um, yeah, I mean, just as you said, African Americans really early on they uh, begin using the corporation to pursue their interests. Um, so I guess the first thing that I'll say is that for me, it really helped to think of the corporation as being a legal tool, right? Like today we think of the corporation as being, you know, a lot of bad things, right? It's wrecking the environment. Um, it's indifferent uh, at best to the interests of women and minorities. Um, and those things are often true, but I found that African-Americans recognized as early as the 1790s that the corporation was a tool and a tool that they also could use. And so you get tons of uh, corporations being formed by African-Americans as far back as the 1790s when Philadelphia's Bethel AME churches is, is founded. Um, and going down through the 1970s, when, as Marcia Chatelain has shown, um, you have African-Americans forming corporations um, to handle franchises of fast food restaurants. So you have all these corporations that are forming, especially after the Civil War. Many of them are churches, but not all of them. And this does several things. Um, it generates cases. So a lot of these Black-run corporations go to court for various reasons. The second thing is it familiarizes lots and lots of Black people with law, right? Every corporation has to have officers. If it's a corporation, that means that it's been registered with the state. It has a charter from the state. Uh, It has to be run in certain ways. So people learn about law because they have to. And then the third thing that Um, the rise of black corporations does is it sustains a a small cadre of black lawyers through the starvation years of Jim Crow after black lawyers get run out of the profession. And we can talk about that later, but black lawyers for a long time, one of the ways that they earn a living is by serving as counsel or or just doing basic legal work for Black-run corporations. So Black corporations are this powerful tool. I could just name a few. One is churches. Another is voluntary organizations, fraternal orders like Alpha Kappa Alpha is a corporation. The NAACP is a corporation. Um, Later on, you have SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, is a corporation. And so all of these um, organizations 
have decided to incorporate because of what it can do to allow uh, a large group of black people to channel their energies in one direction. It's a, that, that's what makes it so powerful. It, it's a way of organizing whatever resources you have, putting them under the direction of uh, a corporate board of directors or a leadership team for them to direct consistent with the mission of the corporation. And so, um, and so that's why black people form them. But what this also does um, is it's because of the existence, the realities of uh, American anti-black racism, black run corporations have to reconcile two duties that white run corporations don't have to. So like white run corporations can pursue um, a somewhat narrower, narrower band of interest. They can pursue the interests of the shareholders or the members. That's their job. That's what they're supposed to do. Um, but a black run corporation has to do not only that, but it also has to uh, fulfill another duty, which is a duty to the race. And that turns out to be really hard to do sometimes. And members often disagree with leaders about exactly this. Um, so one example is that the NAACP for years gets letters written to headquarters and to the branches where people write and say, hey, you know, I'm in trouble. I need a lawyer. Um, I have a dispute over my lease. My landlord is trying to do something funny with my lease. The NAACP will typically write back and say, we don't take personal cases. We only take cases that will advance the interests of the race. And that distinction, I think, is both understandable. Um, it's helpful to the NAACP in a certain way but it also disregards what clearly is the understanding of an awful lot of ordinary African-Americans, many of the members of the NAACP, about what the NAACP corporation is for. Um, they think that the NAACP doesn't just have a duty to the race, right, to advance Black people's uh, interests. It also has a duty to them as members. I paid for my membership. Now give me a lawyer. Um, so I think all of this, the, the way that I think of this is it raises the question, what is a corporation for? That's a very good question. I mean, if you're thinking about it, and it's right, you you know, if you think about the large scale cases that the NAACP pursued versus a person saying, I'm having an issue about my rent, uh, which you know, that's not the same if we're going to be talking Brown versus Board of Education versus someone's rent issues that they have going on in that moment. And their focus, and as you say, in some ways rightly so, was on what's happening with the race and how to make those changes. But 
what was uncovered in your book, it's like it's getting on the ground level, the local level of what's happening with those members of the NAACP, as you talked about. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, this tension between the duty to the race and the duty to the members, sometimes it plays out um, in less less pleasant ways. Um, sometimes the corporate form becomes uh, a shield for autocracy. Uh, it shields male patriarchy. Um, I've, I've found some instances where leaders of uh, Black-run corporations, and the ones that stick out in my mind at this moment are the ones um, of religious corporations, churches, usually. And there you see... um, ministers uh, arrogating to themselves a significant amount of decision-making power over the affairs of the church in defiance of often the wishes of the congregations who are in most black churches then and now, I believe, composed of women. So, you know, one one story that uh, stands out to me from um, from my research that exemplifies this is um, Daniel Payne, who's a minister in the early 1800s in Baltimore. He's an AME minister. He uh, directs his church to make a large donation to another Black-run church. And at the time, he claims he writes in his autobiography that almost everybody was in favor of doing this. There was minimal opposition. But when you read a few pages later and you see what happens, you get a feeling that maybe it wasn't so minimal because he tries to make this donation. He rams it through using his powers um, as the minister and um, taking hold of a all male board of trustees. They make the donation But at the pivotal meeting where the vote is supposed to take place, um, two women come down the aisle and one of them hits Daniel Payne on the side of his head with a bag of nails, lays him out in the pulpit. And then they try to hit uh, one of the other ministers. I think it's the associate pastor. um, And they attack him too before they're dragged back. That to me, I think is a signal that um, that there's a lot more going on than what Payne is willing to admit. And I think it's an example of the ways in which um, the corporation enables uh, people to channel their resources in a certain direction and get things done, but for the very same reason it can sometimes license uh, authoritarian, even dictatorial tendencies. And so there's always this this tension uh, between the members and the leaders. And the way that I think it plays out often is precisely in this world of civil rights. That is to say, 
do the members of a church or any other corporation run by black people, do they have rights or do they only have privileges which can be abrogated at the will of the, of the male leadership? I know that's very interesting to think about because, you know, for most African-Americans, as you noted then and now, and as you were speaking a few moments ago about the 1800s, the hallmark of the black community was the church and still is in some ways. And it's so pivotal, but you're right. When you think about rights versus privileges and what that means for the members. Yeah, it's, it's an enduring tension. You know, the, 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 the legal background behind this is, um, it's kind of interesting. It's the courts are there and black people, just like white people do, they frequently go to court asking for help against their opponents in these church fights. And what the, what the judges then have to do is decide whether they can decide, right? Like the, the first amendment seems to suggest that judges should use extreme caution when wading into religious affairs. And so um, in a series of cases in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, judges gradually come to an understanding about when it's okay for a judge or court generally to wade in and decide uh, what um, what the law in a given church should be or what it is. And their standard is that they can intervene on matters having to do with what they call civil rights. And those generally mean whether there's property involved or contracts involved, or if there's some due process question in the church's own proceedings. So if the church runs a fake trial, puts, you know, puts a member on trial and, and does a bogus job of it, then the courts can wade in and say, essentially, you haven't followed your own rules, but that's kind of it. Right. And that, that, that kind of t- seems to tie judges hands. Just a little side note, one of the big early cases that lays down this doctrine, which is called judicial deference, the deference doctrine that judges should generally defer to the decisions of church leaders. One of the leading cases, in fact, the, the, the number two leading case on this point is Bolden versus Alexander, which is a case involving a black church in Washington, D.C., third colored Baptist church, which fell apart in the late 1860s. And so um, th- th- these cases come up again and again. Judges have to decide whether to decide. And black people, in order to convince judges either to stay in or stay out, they will, if they want the judge to wade in, they say, this dispute is about property. It's about civil rights. The minister has abrogated my civil rights. The minister in turn will say, no, this has nothing to do 
with civil rights. This is just a matter of members' privileges, and therefore the judge should stay out of it, hands off. And you see this again and again. Wow, that is so mind-boggling to think about because, you know, you have, there's this conception in your mind of what the church represents using that as an example. You know, it's so much of a, you forget about the nature of it being a corporation. I think most do at times, or they don't, or there's that tension as you note it because it's such a social fabric and it speaks on so many levels, but yet behind it, there's a lot of things that are going on um, and a lot of things that have to be sorted out. And I wanted to ask you, because we're talking now about like the 1860s and 1870s, let's dial it back a little bit to slavery, which I thought was fascinating because you, you were talking about enslaved people made contracts and they owned property and they had the appearance of quote rights that would come later and you use the terms community opinion and rights of everyday use can you speak a little bit about that sure sure so community opinion is a term that i'm borrowing from a group of law professors who were writing in the 1920s and 30s called the legal realists. And what they meant by that essentially is that often um, law isn't something that gets handed down from the state legislature or from Congress or the Supreme Court. That, that's not how law really works. Often, they, these realists said, law is something that gets formed out there in the world, and then the judges put their stamp of approval on it. They, they bless it and say, this is the law of, let's say, duty to read a contract, right? Um, and so I thought that was a really helpful way to think about something like Jackson Holcomb's boat. Because on one level, it's really a puzzle because he's not a citizen and he doesn't have rights. So how come the soldiers paid him to get across the river? Um, how come they just didn't take the boat? Um, and I said earlier that the reason they did that is because they were used to seeing slaves own property and they were used to making deals with slaves. So what does that mean to make a deal with an enslaved person? Um, I think that the, 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 these deals are getting made within a, a broadly shared network of understandings about how a contract works. Um, and that is what courts then come along and say is part of the law of contract. Um, so, you know, to take one example from later in the book, uh, this Alabama share, sharecropper named Nate Shaw, at various points in his autobiography, he makes a bunch of different offhand remarks about law. So he says, for example, um, that when 
a person is renting land at the at the end of the lease that person is entitled to take with him anything that's not tied down isn't nailed down to the land and so i looked this up in the alabama you know the laws of alabama he's absolutely right like you know fixtures stay with the land movables do not they're you know the tenant can take them so if the tenant puts up a house right like you know if if it's not nailed down to the land he can take it he can put it up um, and drag it away with a mule and so white people know that this is the law black people know that this is a, is the law and so there's this broadly shared understanding that's formed partly out of what the state legislature says, but it's also formed partly out of what people are already doing in their everyday lives. So that's community opinion. And I mean, we can circle back if we want, but um, community opinion, of course, you know, the, the community whose opinion shows up as the law it's, of course, full of racial inequalities, gender inequalities, um, class inequalities. So, you know, if you're talking about whose understanding of uh, what counts as uh, a working day is actually the law, then generally the, the judges are going to listen to the more powerful members of quote unquote, the community. They're not always going, they're probably not going to listen to the workers' understanding of what a working day is. And yet there's room for um, more than just a top-down view of law. Uh, the rights of everyday use, um, this is a, a term that I found helpful to me to think about what is in essence the, the core stuff that people in my book are dealing with. And so these fall under the headings of rights of property, rights of contract, and the right to sue and be sued. And these happen to be the rights that are codified in the 1866 Civil Rights Act, the first national law defining civil rights. Um, but they're also the rights that I think people use in their everyday lives much more frequently than, uh, I would say they invoke, uh, the right to protection against discrimination by race. That's what, that's what I, uh, mean when I say rights of everyday use. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, and you kind of reference this a little bit. But before the Civil War, Blacks often learned about law from whites. How did it change after the war? Right. Yeah, I, before the Civil War, as I said, Blacks, they, they can go to court and hang out by the courthouse and listen. Nobody's really stopping them if they have the time and they're able to get there. Um, and there are all sorts of accounts of Black people doing just that. Um, but a lot of the way that black people learn about law during slavery is number one, by interacting with white people around things like, you know, ferrying somebody across a river, making deals, um, 
uh, raising small livestock. Um, that's generally the way that they, they learn about law. And the other way they learn about law is by seeing what law, the horrible things that law does to black people. Um, so you think about black people being sold away from their, from their mothers, uh, from their brothers and sisters. Often the reason that this happens is because of an estate sale. So the, the person who owned the slaves has died and either under the will or in the absence of a will, the slaves have to be divided or the estate executor ha has chosen to divide them um, in order to settle the debts of the estate. And so black people see this happen. They experience this in the most brutal, visceral way, and they pay attention. You know, they, they understand, um, for example, the powers of an estate administrator. Uh, they understand um, the limits of what can be done to an enslaved person who is being rented out rather than owned by the person who possesses him. Um, you think about that movie, 12 Years a Slave, and I think that was probably a really vivid illustration of this principle. Um, Solomon Northrup, he's being brutalized uh, by this overseer, by this renter, the man who's rented him, Tibbets, but Tibbets can't kill him um, because uh, Solomon Northup represents a debt owed by one white man to another white man. If Tibbets kills Northup, the collateral for that debt will be extinguished and he'll be on the hook. So, you know, that's a really vivid illustration of how um, black people are learning about law through the brutal things that are done to them during slavery. After slavery, black people uh, have other opportunities to learn law. And one is they begin forming these corporations. Um, they organize themselves into fraternities, religious societies. They have to learn law to do that. Probably the biggest way that they have to learn law has to do with their lives as workers. One of the first orders of business, as everyone knows during Reconstruction, is uh, to get uh, the South's economy going again. And the South's economy runs in large part on the labor of Black people. Because they're no longer slaves, whites now have to hire Black people on contracts. And so right away, Black people are learning they're getting sort of a crash course in contract law. And you can see this again and again, black people negotiating the terms of contracts. Like they, you know, Northerners go South and they have this idea that the, the contract is this inherently liberating thing, you know, that it's this almost libertarian idea, like that, that having a contract is a sacred the right to make a contract is a sacred right. And once we bring black people into the light 
of contract, they will be truly free. And it almost becomes like this symbol, this talisman. But, you know, when you look at what black people are actually doing with contracts, they're, they're really caught up in the details. They want to know like, okay, I'm going to get paid how much. And then if I leave on December 25th, I get paid how much and can I make a contract for my wife? Yes or no. Are my children part of the contract? What happens if this landlord asks me to, um, to work in the cornfield when all I've agreed to work on is the cotton. Um, who gets to decide that? Like they're they're really literally negotiating and sometimes lit- litigating over contracts. And they're not legal experts, but they kind of know what they're doing. They're interested in the details. They want to know exactly how this contract is going to impact their life or the lives of their families. That's right. Cause that, that's where the devil lives is in the details. It's not just, do you have a contract or not? Right. It's not like a contract is a beautiful, wonderful, good thing or, uh, an inherently bad, uh, you know, oppressive thing. It's not either one of those things. It's just a contract. It's another legal tool. And black people are really interested in figuring out whether and how they can use it to pursue their interests. Now, does this change? I want to ask you because your book, it covers a large time frame as we spoke about um, earlier. Does this change with the advent of the Jim Crow era? Um, <clears throat> some things change, but the, the thing that stands out the most to me is actually that black people not only continue going to court, continue using contract and property law, but they actually intensify their use of it, at least as measured by their presence on the county court dockets. The numbers get higher and higher uh, in terms of how many Black people are appearing on the docket books. Um, There are some counties in Mississippi where, uh, you know, fully... 27 to 30 and sometimes more percent of the plaintiffs in a given year are black. Again, these are civil cases. They're not criminal cases. They're civil cases. Um, A lot of them are divorces. A lot of them are not um, adversarial cases. You know, they're not cases where somebody's winning or losing. And most important, I should say, most of them um, are not against white people. They're against other black people. And there, you know, we can talk about that. Um, but the general trend that I see as Jim Crow drags on is that black people are, are not going away from law. They're doubling down. They they are really um, entering as fully as they possibly can into the possibilities of their civil rights. And they are uh, working as hard as they can to guard themselves against the the risks, the, the pitfalls, the dangers of those same civil rights. You know, as I was reading, one of the most interesting things that you, there's lots of interesting things, especially about this era, and we'll talk about the other one in a few moments, but it was one of the consequences of Jim Crow was this hostility hostility 
of whites to blacks practicing law. They're almost completely eradicated from the profession during this time. Yet, you know, black people, they, I want to, so I want to ask you, how did that happen? And yet black people are still, they continue to be involved in the law during this time. Can you speak about that? No, that's a great question. So, um, after the Civil War, there is this period where some white lawyers are willing to train black lawyers, um, invite them into their offices, let them sit alongside them as they draft briefs, as they write contracts, um, and learn the law that way. And that is, in fact, how most American lawyers got trained. Um, it's by apprenticeship. You don't go to law school. And so, and in the 1890s, when the white supremacists take over the Southern state legislatures, one of the things that they do is they, um, they make law school um, a prerequisite for practicing law. And they do this because there's a push for that from the white bar, the, the white lawyers associations in many of these states. And that has the effect of driving black people out because black people are barred from attending most of the law schools in the South. And so they can't qualify for the bar. So this is clearly, you know, like a white supremacist move that's conducted under the banner of professional standards, right? Like we need to reform the practice of law. We need to clean it up. We need to get these, you know, fly-by-night lawyers out of the business. Um, but what's really interesting is when, when you look closely at the reasons why the white bar associations want to clean up uh, the profession, it's because uh, they're afraid of competition for the business of black clients. Like they actually want black people as clients and they are willing to institute these exclusionary standards to monopolize that business. And it's just fascinating because out of one side of their mouth, they're making fun of the ignorance of black people talking about how ignorant their black clients are. But out of the other side of their mouth, they're saying, well, you know, um, we need to get rid of these, um, these people who hang around the courthouse trying to drum up clients who are not good lawyers. They're not professionals. So they succeed. But what, and, and this I think is probably just a really, really interesting thing that emerged in, at least in my mind, is that after they kick out the, kick black people out of the professional practice of law, you still see black people providing legal advice. You know, time and again, 
I come across these cases and people will just sort of offhandedly mention, well, you know, someone will ask, how did you come to bring this lawsuit? And the person will say, well, you know, I went and talked to this black man, uh, and they'll give the name, and he told me that he thought I had a case. He thought that it was worth looking into. And that's when I went and hired a white lawyer. So even though there's no more room for a professional black lawyer, there is still room even in the deep South, even in the the depths of Jim Crow, for quasi-professional Black legal advice givers. That seems amazing. I mean, just to think about it, that yet they were, even though they are virtually just kicked out, and it makes sense when you think about it, the economics of this you would not want to have a black lawyer as competition um, because word can get around. You know, a lot of this is going by word of mouth. Oh, I have this client and, you know, he or she tells another person, of course, they're going to come to you versus going to the white lawyer who may or may not be a greater distance from them. So of course you're going to try to strip all black areas yet Blacks are still talking to each other about the law. They're still providing advice to each other about it. Um, That shows that resilience that, yes, there was this mechanism in place, but they're working around that. And so that's what I wanted to ask you going off of that, specifically about how Jim Crow impacted meanings about how we conceptualize land during this time. Because I'm sure, as you note in in your book, that's one of the cases where there were lots of instances of property ownership during this time of cases that were being discussed. Yes. Land, just as you would expect, is a real, it generates a lot of cases. And, you know, I mean, it's worth stepping back for a minute to just remember why that is. It's one of the most expensive things that people own uh, at that time. Still is, of course. I mean, heck, I live in the Bay Area. It's unbelievably expensive. And so, um, you know, in order to get land, Black people have to invest an incredible amount of energy, of time, sweat, resources into uh, acquiring land. Um, And so I think it's no surprise that Black people would would wind up sometimes disputing over this incredibly valuable um, asset. So, you know, I think early on, um, Black people, when they acquire land immediately after the Civil War, they think about it in more than one way. So, you know, one way is it's a commodity. You can buy it and sell it. It costs something. And you have to think about it that way, right? You can't get land unless you find out what the price is. Um, And so Black people do buy and sell land, and they think about it as a commodity. 
but they, like many white people, also think about it in, as a propriety, that is, something that um, that expresses, that represents the identity and interests of a collective, usually a family. And so these two things are in a kind of creative tension, land as commodity, land as propriety. Um, and you can see that first and foremost in... Um, the institution that many people call family land or heir property. And that is this, it's a phenomenon that's gotten a lot of attention over the past 10 years or so because uh, scholars have, have concluded that it's one of the reasons black people have lost land since the 1910s. Um, But family land is essentially a byproduct of not having a will. So if you if you die, um, you can either die with a will or without a will. If if you die with a will, then the property gets distributed according to whatever you wrote on that paper. If you die without a will, then the state has certain rules that spell out how your property is going to be distributed. And generally speaking, what happens is it goes to um, your next of kin, and then from them to their descendants. And so if you stop to think about it, what's going to happen is the ownership of that land is going to be fragmented pretty quickly. Two children, four grandchildren, you know, eight or 12 or 16 great-grandchildren. Pretty, pretty quickly, you've got lots and lots of Black people who have a uh, an interest in the land, um, and they have to uh, they have to agree on what's going to happen with the land. And the key thing is that they don't own a certain slice of the land; they have uh, an interest in the whole of the land. So they might have a one twentieth share of the entire parcel, including the house, you know, the garage, you know, the front acres where there's a stream and everything else, right? So you can't just give one person the house and call it a day. So what happens after Jim Crow is the Great Migration starts to put distance between people who are living in the South and actually working the land and often taking care of older relatives and other relatives who move far away say, to Cleveland or New York. And, you know, they might come home for family reunions. They might not. But in any case, they're not living on the land. And this this generates tensions um, within Black families. Sometimes those tensions result in the land getting broken up or getting sold to white developers. It becomes golf courses, oil fields, and so forth. And you know, modern commentators have um, have viewed um, fa- air property, family land, as kind of an Achilles heel in the story of Black land ownership, and that's certainly true. Um, but I think it's really worth stopping to think about um, what Black family members 
actually thought about land and about their obligations to one another, because that's also part of the story. I agree. And that's one thing that you did very well in showing in your book was what Black people actually thought about the land and what it meant to their families, which is something that you often forget, as you mentioned. Um, you think about you're thinking about the legal asset, but what did it actually mean to them? Uh, that is equally as important. Uh, what were their notions about family and property ownership during this time? And one of the things I want to say, besides land, I think there were so many fascinating things in this book, was your discussion of divorce and how you know, from the 1890s to the 1960s. And I, you know, in my mind, as I'm thinking of this question, and because I had written it before our discussion, is this, you're thinking about, you know, these patriarchal notions of what that meant, especially within the Black community. And that gets into these ideas about respectability um, and how divorce can be perceived. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I mean, that's actually a really nice segue from land. Um, I was surprised, maybe you'd be surprised too, to discover that uh, 1910 or 1915 was the time, that was the year when Black people in the United States owned more land than they ever had before. And I think they have since. We're talking about 15 million acres of land. Um, it's, you know, this is also the height of lynching. Right. It's it's an incredible, you know, achievement in the face of adversity. And so, you know, how did they achieve this? They achieve it in large part through uh, family labor. They, they, the sharecropping system, in essence, is a delegation of the authority that used to belong to the slave owner through his overseer. It's a delegation of that power to direct other people's labor to the head of the household. They organize sharecropping. Sharecropping is organized labor, farm labor around a family. And as often as not, the head of the family is a man. And so Jim Crow, I would say it's not too much of a stretch to say that it's an era of legalized patriarchy. Men literally have property rights in their wives and children. That is to say, they have the right to direct the labor of their wives and children. Children literally owe service to their fathers. Um, and this is, uh, you know, this reality of black patriarchy, I think is necessary for that achievement of black land ownership. Um, it's necessary, if you think about it, for the founding of black colleges. I mean, where do they get those donations from? It's largely from black farmers sending money or tuition to black colleges. Um, so these tremendous achievements that black people reach during Jim Crow, 
are built at bottom on this foundation of black patriarchy. Um, so you get, for example, Nate Shaw, who I mentioned a bit ago, the Alabama tenant farmer. Um, his father was born in slavery. And Nate Shaw actually tells his interviewer in the 1970s that his father bossed him just like slavery. I mean, that's just, you know, a kind of a stunning thing to say that your father bossed him, that your father bossed you like a slave. Um, it's, it's, it's really um, an important part of African-American history that I think does not get ta talked about enough. But equally important is that um, people fight back through civil rights against this patriarchal organization of labor, black women in particular, and they do it by divorcing, right? So um, Laura Edwards had a wonderful article some years ago uh, titled, um, The Marriage Covenant is the Foundation of All Our Rights. And I, I have come to believe that um, the right to divorce or divorce <laughs> is also <laughs> for black women it is a foundation of all their rights you know because as long as they're in that marriage their husband has extensive legal rights over uh over the, the the family property and over her labor and over their children and so black women seize back their civil rights from this collective that is the family and they do it by divorcing black men and then they assert over and over again, hey, you know what? Um, that house that you're living in, it's actually mine. Um, uh, you know, and they go to court and they get an, an audience with a white judge. The judges are always white. And quite frequently, they win. They get the house, they get money. Um, and so that, I think, is, uh, I guess, sort of the the flip side of this story of black patriarchy. It's black women using civil rights to fight back against black men's assertion of their civil right to control the labor of black women and children. I will be honest and say that as I read that section in your book, the chapter that uh, discussed divorce, I could not keep a smile off of my face um, as I was reading through the cases that you mentioned. Um, it was nice to see that the women, you know, they were willing to challenge and they won. As you say, most often, it, it was nice to see that. Um, they often they won. And I, I'll just say this just as a, like a coda to all that. Um, divorce is one of those cases where for me, at least it's usually really hard to say that anybody won. Um, usually the other person, the defendant or the respondent doesn't even show up. And I think that's because they both want this. Like they, they both want the marriage to be over. And that's why the respondent doesn't show up. Um, to look at it a different way, if you read a divorce case on the docket and the decree 
says divorce granted. Does that mean that the plaintiff won? I don't know. All it means, I think, is that the marriage is over. So, you know, adverse... I had to get out of the mindset of thinking that every case is actually um, involving two adversaries. Often it's people trying to work out through the court system a set of understandings and expectations that they've already arranged outside of court. And that makes it easier to do it. It just becomes official at that point. And as you say, no one per se wins in the divorce, it's just this union is no longer working to both of our benefits. So we need to determine how we can move forward in the best capacity capacity for all of us. And that I think that's exactly right. That and always people who appear in divorce suits, they're thinking about exactly the thing that you just mentioned. They want to know how can I um, navigate this court process in a way that's going to be beneficial to me in the life that I want to make for myself, right? Like, you know, in a divorce, it's really about imagining life after this marriage is over. And, and that kind of gets at, I think, a really important, um, tension that black women in particular, but, but any black divorce litigant has to navigate, which is um, this tension between the valuable right to end a marriage, which is important to you as a person, versus uh, what it will mean to Black people in general, to to the race. Um, and and he, here, I think, a really... Um, vivid example. Um, It it actually comes from 1958 uh, in the aftermath of the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, You've probably seen this iconic photograph of Martin Luther King being arrested inside the Montgomery City Hall, the recorder's court. He's being pushed over the counter, right? It's, it's, his hands are jammed behind his back. Um, Coretta Scott King is, you know, standing there looking on as these policemen do this to, to her husband. Um, and then there's a white man behind the counter who's moving toward them, uh, you know, getting ready, I think, to write up his arrest record. And so, you know, this, this is a really iconic photograph. It, it dramatizes the racial injustice that's going on in the South of the 1950s. But there's a story behind it. Um, why was King there? Uh, you know, he got arrested for a reason. The reason is he was trying to look in on the arraignment of a man named Edward Davis. Edward Davis, the Friday before, had chased Ralph Abernathy, King's right-hand man, one of the most famous ministers black ministers in Montgomery, chased Abernathy out of the basement of Abernathy's church because he was convinced that Abernathy was having an affair with his wife, Vivian Davis. In other words, 
Ralph Abernathy's marital troubles were about to spill out into public um, and King was going to check on that legal proceeding. Now, in the end, Davis got acquitted. I don't know how. I mean, he, they caught him in the, in the street waving a hatchet. Um, there was testimony to that effect. But Davis got acquitted, and the whole thing kind of got swept under the rug and forgotten. But, you know, when you stop to think about it, um, what really stands out is that both Juanita Abernathy and Vivian Davis face a dilemma in that moment. Um, and the dilemma is this, if they exercise their civil right, that is the right to divorce um, a wayward husband, the right to testify, if they exercise those civil rights, they are going to undermine the civil rights movement, the sacred cause of black freedom. I call that the dilemma of the preacher's wife. One kind of civil rights is in tension with another rapidly sacralizing kind of civil rights. Um, and I think that the origins of that tension run all the way back to uh, the 1860s when black people are first grasping the possibilities of divorce because white newspapers are uh, from the very beginning ready to exploit racist stereotypes about black people's um, sexual lives, about their, their family lives. And it, for black people to go to court and to lay out difficulties in their private lives, as you must do in, um, in, in order to get a divorce in America before the 1970s, in, if you do that, you may be harming the interests of the race. And that is an impossible poisoned choice. I agree because there are some things I am sure that you needed to sacrifice for the greater good of the race, the racial perceptions that were going on during the time and to promote respectability and racial uplift. And that in that moment would assume more importance than yes i do have a cheating spouse and as you said you know before 1970s you're laying all of this out in the court and this is in public opinion as well and you know that would be and some i guess would perceive that to be detrimental to the larger motives especially by the time we get to the civil rights movement um, of the 1950s and 1960s, which it makes me want to ask you, as we're thinking about contextual, contextualizing that, did that, did the larger movement impact Black Americans' interactions with the law you found, or were there two separate distinctions still being made during this time? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so, one answer is that black people kept going to court. Um, that if, if you look at the, you know, the statistics, um, the, the number of black plaintiffs dips, but I think it's 
it's not because black people are going less frequently to court. It's because of changes, technical changes in the way that courts get organized. So black people are still clearly using the courts to pursue their interests. They're using the rights of everyday use. Um, but the, the civil rights movement does something to the idea of civil rights over the period from the 1860s to the 1960s, civil rights goes, I think, from being thought of as rights of everyday use to more and more being thought of as the right to protection against discrimination on the basis of race. Now, that second meaning was, was there from the beginning in the 1860s, but what changes in the 1940s and 50s is that it gets identified with something that is sacred, uh, something that is the opposite of mundane. And that pulls, I think, activists in particular, um, white media coverage in particular, it pulls civil rights away from Black people's everyday common sense of what civil rights are. In, in, in other words, it, it takes the idea of civil rights and it lifts it up away from, you know, the, the, the contract that you sign around your dinner table. It lifts it up into the sacred realm of, uh, you know, the March on Washington, the, the I Have a Dream speech, um, the, the Birmingham church bombing, all of these things have the effect of sacralizing what used to be thought of as a mundane tool of everyday life. Now, Black people are still using civil rights every day. It's just that they, they no longer, I think, discuss them that way. Um, and then what happens, I think, a further step is that many activists, particularly those from SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they begin to think that civil rights is pretty much weak tea altogether, that what, what America needs, what Black people need, isn't just civil rights. We need more than a hamburger, Ella Baker said. More, you know, what good is... Um, the right to sit down at a lunch counter if you don't have money for a hamburger. So they're talking about economic justice. They're talking about radical democracy. They're talking about a freedom of the human spirit. And civil rights is kind of this frumpy, old-fashioned thing. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, that happens as a result of that sort of rhetoric is that it further distances the way that activists talk about rights from the way that ordinary people in the South in particular actually think about and use rights. So you get activists going into Mississippi and saying things like, we're here to teach the folk about their rights. Um, or you get um, people fanning out uh, to protect black people from losing their land, saying essentially the same thing. 
Black people are losing land because they're ignorant. We have to teach them about their rights. And, you know, they kind of have a point, like the law of intestacy, the law of tenancy in common. It's kind of technical. I, I don't fully grasp it myself. But at a basic level, I think that they're wrong. Um, black people in the South have uh, common sense about law, um, what Nate Shaw calls goat sense. They pretty much get law about as well as your average white person does. And when they need help, they hire a lawyer, right? They don't need someone to come and teach them about their rights. They need a lot of things, but that's not one of them. So, you know, I think what changes um, during the 1960s isn't so much whether Black people are still thinking about or using civil rights, is that you get this split between how Black people actually use the rights of everyday use and this new sacred idea of civil rights. I agree. And as you were saying that, I was sitting here thinking a couple of thoughts that I want to share with you. One of which is, you know, when you have this sacrilegious, you know, the larger movement, for some, it's we're working for the greater good of the race. We're trying to entra- we're trying to enact the large scale, large scale change. But on the basic level, for as you say, those rights of everyday use, that's the day to day living of most people and how they survive. And there's yes, there's a tension there, but you also have people just needed to live. And the second thought is when you said, um, you know, they're coming in and saying the folk needed to learn about the law, but most, as you've found in your book, already had experience with the law. They already knew. Granted, as you said, the technical details weren't there, but they knew what mm-hmm. was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And so, I mean, what lessons can we draw from that? Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe, may, maybe one lesson is just to uh, pay more attention to what people are saying. But you know, um, I, I think that what the activists did was important and extremely effective. Uh, I'm not criticizing it in that way. That that kind of rhetoric may even have been necessary. But it, you know, it did have that effect. Um, I guess the other thing that I'll say that might just be sort of a, a, a useful caution is that um, I don't think that the rights of everyday use were a panacea. You know, it, it it's not like if SNCC had gone down and um, tried to work through contract and property law that that things would have been necessarily better. Um, I guess, um, what I'm most interested in is how these kinds of rhetoric, these kinds of decisions shape the way that we today think about African-American history. And, you know, I think one of the legacies of that 1960s, 70s rhetoric is an image of black Southerners as essentially anti-legalist. Um, that, that they don't know much about 
law, um, but they do know that they want, you know, economic justice. And there are costs to that. I think, I think that there are costs to that. So I want to ask you, Professor Penningroth, what do you want readers to take away from the book? Yeah, I mean, I guess there are a few things that, that stick in my mind uh, as takeaways. I guess the, the, the biggest one is probably that, um, that black history is more than the freedom struggle. Um, that we can see the diversity of black life alongside the commonality of racial oppression. Um, I guess the second thing that I would say is um, that, you know, when we, th- when we think about what happened to George Floyd, um, when we think about what happened to Breonna Taylor, you know, those acts of violence uncovered uh, for many people out there, um, opened their eyes to a pervasive and persistent reality of life in these United States, um, which is uh, anti-Black violence. And I guess the lesson that I come away with um from looking at the juxtaposition of um, lynching with the peak of black land ownership in the South is that anti-black violence, including state violence, can coexist with black people using law, talking about law, thinking about law, exercising their civil rights. And that, I think, is worth contemplating. We should be asking how it was that Black people put their faith in law when the civil rights movement came along. And I think that question is especially important now in this era when so many people are trying to weaken Americans' faith in the rule of law itself. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. I want to ask you one last thing before we wrap up, Professor Penningroth. Sure. What are you working on next? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> my, so I guess my next project, I, I'm excited about this. I laid it aside many years ago, um, but it's a project about legacies of slavery in um, colonial Ghana, it's Ghana, West Africa. And, and, you know, it comes out of some work that I was doing in the 2000s using court records from the National Archives of Ghana and from the, um, the, the, rec- the, the official royal records of one of the important kingdoms um, just north of Accra. And, you know, I'm just really interested in looking at how people in Ghana talked about slavery 
enslaved descent and how that relates to evolving ideas of race. Wow. That sounds so fascinating. I almost want to go out and pick up a copy now. So <laughs> so do I. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I can't wait for you to finish it. And hopefully yeah. I can get you back on to the New Book Networks. But thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Penningroth. Thank you for having me. It's, it's just been so much fun to discuss this with you. I appreciate it. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Before the Movement. It is for academics. It's for non-academics. And Professor Penningroff, he has made legal verbos, I want to say, easily accessible to those who are not in the legal profession. And you get to learn more about the legal lives of Black people. This book, it's informative, it's riveting, it's emotional. So I implore you to go out and pick up a copy. You will not be disappointed. You get a chance to look at Black self-determination, as we were saying, in a time when there was Black oppression. So please, I urge you to go out and pick up a copy. It will be on sale. September 26. So readers, I urge you now, reserve your copy. And once September 26 is here, pick up a copy. You will not regret it. 